Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to use that nightstand if I can. That's okay. Yeah, go ahead. I'm messing all kinds of things up today. I'm just trying to make sure that everybody appreciates when Bailey gets back from a little bit of a vacation, a little break. We, uh, we want to make sure that we remember, um, remember uh, Augie. He's been at home and been in quarantine. I believe he gets to come back tomorrow. So, But the band, boy, haven't they done a great job? They did fantastic, I think. I just, I'm, I'm so appreciative of anybody who can make music like that. I'm jealous of it, to be real honest. Um, I know you're not supposed to covet, but I do. Um, and, and Bailey and his family are having some, some well-deserved time away and time off. Uh, I think they're, they're kind of doing a staycation. And, uh, but they're getting some time just to visit his family and, and enjoy one another. And I hope that you all got to do some of that. I know it's been different this year, not quite the same amount of travel, uh, people haven't been able to go and hang out with family like we have in the past sometimes, and and that can be difficult, but um, hopefully you got to at least call people and, and visit with your family and friends and text them, let them know how much you cared for them. You know, during, the, during this, this time of year, one of the things that I'm guessing is going to be similar in your, in your households like mine, we love when we gather together with family and friends and and you share those text messages or emails or phone calls with one another, and you express how much you, you mean to one another, and you begin to tell stories. Maybe around the Thanksgiving table, if, if you weren't able to do it this year, maybe you can think back with me to a time when you could do it. You gather around, and, and it becomes one of those times whenever those shared family histories come up. You know, the ones where you start telling the stories that, that you would never tell out loud to anybody else but are held within the family? And you do it, it's important, you do it year after year after year, and the younger ones, the, the, the newest generation, they get to hear some of those family stories. They get to hear those things that make your family what it is. Uh, you know, all the good stuff, and then all those things you don't share out loud. Uh, we, we had one, um, I probably shouldn't share this story, but I will anyway. Um, you know, everybody's family has, has those members of them that you don't, you don't take out in public, Right? Uh, please tell me I'm not the only family person that has, or the only person that has family you don't take out in public. But y'all have those people, those people you don't take out in public, but you love them dearly. And, and we tell stories. I learned a story at my grandfather's funeral about a great uncle of mine named Isaac. And Isaac, um, Isaac, I, I don't really remember what he had. I don't, I'm not sure I was ever told, but he, whether it was MS or something, but he, he had trouble walking. He had trouble talking at times. And he had two brothers, my great-grandfather and, his, and their other brother, Ed. And Ed evidently was pretty ruthless with his brother Isaac and would tease him mercilessly, you know, like a brother can do. And we would hear these stories, and we share them almost every year we gather together now, about when they would go out hunting together. And Isaac, with whatever kind of handicap he had, couldn't hold the gun straight. And so every time he'd go out hunting and try to shoot something, he never did hit it because he couldn't hold the gun correctly. And Ed, being the kind brother that he was, you know, would tease him and say, well, you know, if you just held the gun straight, and Isaac would get mad, and, and they would say a bunch of things that, well, you know, we can't repeat in church to one another. My great-grandpa Pete, evidently, um, he liked, he liked uh, well, up north they call it the German holy water, beer. He liked beer a lot. 
And one time when they were out hunting, the great-grandpa Pete had, had a few too many, and so Ed and Isaac went out on their own. And when Isaac and Ed were out there, uh, they, they saw a bird or something that they were going to shoot, and, and, and Isaac tried to shoot at it and missed it, as was his usual course. And Ed teased him about it again. And so Isaac responded by shooting in Ed's direction. Well, Isaac showed back up at the cabin where my great-grandfather was, and great-grandpa Pete turned and said, Isaac, where's Ed? And he goes, I don't know. And he goes, what do you mean I don't know? And he said, what happened? And he said, well, we were out hunting, and I took a shot at a bird, and Ed teased me again, and I got sick of it. Said, so I turned around, and I shot him. And he goes, you did what? And he goes, I shot him. And he goes, where'd you shoot him? In the face. And great-grandpa Pete went out to go find him, and sure as the day is long, he finds his brother in the snow got shot by his brother Isaac. And Isaac turned to Ed and said, I shot straight that time, didn't I? Now, we would hear all these stories, and I'm sure that over time, some of those stories get embellished and get changed over time. In fact, my wife might be right that sometimes I might embellish some of those stories to make them fit or to make them have a little more flavor to them. Like 40 years later, Ed had to go in for a CT scan. He had brain cancer. He ended up dying of brain cancer. And when they put him in the, in the machine to do the CT scan, they were getting ready to fire it up, and the poor little little guy who runs the machine ran out from behind the glass and said, Sir, you've got to get out of there. got to get out of there real quick. And he said, Why? What's going on? He said, If I turn this machine on, he said, There's metal all over your head. It's going to come flying out of your head and hit the magnets. He said, It won't be good. And he goes, Yeah, that's my silly brother 40-some-odd years ago. And these are just some of the stories about our family, right? And they make us who we are. But we also know those stories of people who did amazing things in our family or who impacted our family, maybe some crummy things where others in our family decided that they were going to go a different direction, that astounding events happened in their life, and it caused them to make a decision, kind of that moment of whether it was crisis or a turning point where they had to make a, make a decision in that moment about what kind of person they were going to be. When we gather for Advent, we tell family stories that are part of who we are as the body of Christ. In Advent, we tell the story of the birth of Jesus every year. If we didn't tell the story in Luke on Christmas Eve, if we didn't sing certain hymns like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, if we didn't sing Silent Night on Christmas Eve with candlelight, if we didn't tell about Mary and Joseph making that, that journey down to Bethlehem, we would feel like Christmas was somehow incomplete. And many of us over this holiday season somehow feel like it's already a little incomplete if we didn't gather like we usually do as a family, right? But how many times when we tell this story, this birth narrative, this Advent story, how much of that story is really the way it's recorded in Scripture? How much of that story really has more embellishment, or, and maybe I don't want to use that word, but maybe our own imprint placed on it because of our own context, our own upbringing, or maybe the stories we were told, where maybe it was told from a different perspective, it might be slightly different. 
And what about some of the characters that we don't know so well? We have to make assumptions about them. And today I want to talk about just such a person. One of the most fascinating people, I think, in the Bible, and uh, maybe underappreciated, is Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. Do you know we never hear him speak a word in the New Testament? And yet, we know he had to have a profound impact, especially in the early years of our Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who had power over death itself. So today I want to explore Joseph. We read up to verse 17 uh, in, in the first chapter of Matthew. If we pick it up in verse 18, this is what it says about Joseph and the birth of Jesus. So this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be a child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. It comes right out of Isaiah which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, let's start with just a few basic questions. Where was Joseph from? You may want to guess. Where was he from? What do we usually tell in our story? Where did he and Mary come from? Nazareth, right? We usually say they travel from Nazareth. So the way I always heard the story was that Joseph was from Nazareth, and yet he's told to go to his own hometown. The text doesn't tell us one way or the other. It just says that he's returned to his own hometown, which they end up in Bethlehem. Nazareth is not mentioned in Matthew's gospel until the second chapter. Matthew 2, verse two, uh, 23. By that time, Jesus would have been about two years old. Luke 2, 3 states that all went to their own town to be registered. This would imply that Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown. And, and if that was the case, if Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown, then it begs another question. Why wasn't Jesus born in Joseph's house, if, in fact, Bethlehem was his hometown. Where was Jesus born? Where did he go to, where, where did Mary and Joseph end up where, that, that Joseph was born, or that Jesus was born? In an inn, right? Like a holiday inn, because we had Holiday Inn and Comfort Inn and Ramada and the Overton all over the place in Bethlehem. Those places really didn't exist. In fact, it may be that Jesus was actually born in the house that Joseph grew up in himself, still in a manger, where the animals were, 
In fact, it would make sense that, that whenever in Middle Eastern families, like Joseph would have been a part of, whenever siblings and, or, or, or offspring began to get married, they would be married and they would move in to the family house. And they would just build a room on it, build another room and build another room. But they also had an area where they kept the animals. It's possible, not saying this is the case, but it's possible that whenever Joseph and Mary made their way back into Bethlehem, they did in fact go to the house that Joseph grew up in. But there was no room for them in the house anymore because maybe Joseph's siblings and other family were there and Mary being pregnant and being ready to give birth would have been unclean that the only place for them was in the same area of the house where the animals were. To be born there in a manger. It's hard when we read the story, especially when we have some picture in our mind, a story that we've always been told, but the text doesn't give us very clear descriptions of all that. If that was the case, where was Mary from? Well, tradition and probably history teach us that Mary was from a place called Sephora, which is right near Nazareth, on the same mountain. This morning we were, we were doing a class, um, we were doing a Bible study class in, in, in Sunday school, and we talked about the place Megiddo, where we get the term Armageddon from. Across the Jezreel Valley where Megiddo is, you can see Nazareth. And if you look just to the left of there, as you're looking north towards Nazareth, you can see where the town of Sepphoris was, which is where Mary, tradition says Mary and her family lived. Joseph, we know, was in the Nazareth area because he was working there. We know he was up there working, and he was a tecton, and we'll, we'll explore what that word means here in a little bit. But if Mary was up there in Nazareth, and Joseph was really from the town of Bethlehem, if he was working in Nazareth, they may have had opportunity to connect that way and to meet one another. But there's another possibility about how Mary's family and Joseph's family got together as well. If we know that Mary was from the area of, of, of uh, Nazareth, um, we also know that whenever Mary got pregnant, she went to go visit her cousin, right? Her cousin Elizabeth, and she lived in a place called Ein Karem. Ein Karem is not very far from Jerusalem. Bethlehem is about a two-hour walk from Jerusalem, just to the south of Jerusalem. Ein Karem is kind of the north-northwest, where John the Baptist was born to Mary's cousin Elizabeth. We know that when Mary gets pregnant, she goes to visit her, 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 her cousin Elizabeth there. And it seems that it's in that period where the angel comes to visit Joseph and share with him this news of this, of this bride that, that he's supposed to be taking. It would also appear that, that given the close proximity of Ein Karem and Bethlehem, that their families would have been able to know each other. Remember, arranged marriage was kind of the order of the day back then. It might have been kind of a long-distance relationship at that point, and Joseph and Mary didn't see much of each other, if at all, until the moment that Mary becomes pregnant. And Joseph is given this word. But it may have been while he was there in Bethlehem, and she was there in Ein Karem, not while they were up in Nazareth, though they, they did go to live there. And we know that Jesus gets to be raised there in Nazareth. It changes the order and the way that we think about the story in some ways. Now, I'm not trying to mess up our Advent story. But it does point to the amazing movement of God in our lives and the lives of those who seek to be true to what God calls them to. 
that in the most amazing of circumstances, God finds a way. Can you imagine being in Joseph's shoes when the angel comes to share this news about Mary? Especially if they'd never actually met. It says something about the character of who he was. So let's talk a little bit about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a well-known town, right? It was a small town, a little tiny town, but it was a well-known town. It was a, it, it, the, the word actually means the house of bread. And it was about a two-hour walk from Jerusalem, but this is the, the setting for the book of Ruth. The setting for the book of Ruth. And, and Ruth, remember, eventually becomes the great-grandmother of the king David. Bethlehem was also called the city of David, much like Jerusalem was. Bethlehem was a well-known place. It just was small. It was a little shepherding village. Not many people lived there, but it was a place that, was, that held great meaning for the Jewish people. The prophet Micah had foretold that a new king would come from Bethlehem, and that his name would be Emmanuel, according to the prophet Isaiah. And most of what we think we know comes from the traditions um, of our Advent story, like our little nativity scenes that we have everywhere, right? About the little town of Bethlehem, about the shepherd's field and the shepherds going up to, to visit whenever they get, they get told by the, the angels that, that a Savior has been born to them. And when you look at the town of Bethlehem, you can see exactly how that takes place. Bethlehem sits, this house of bread, this, this town called House of Bread, sits up on top of this hill, and coming down towards the Kidron Valley are these beautiful hills. And back in the day, they were full of grass, and shepherds walked all over the place, and sheep, and, and all kinds of flocks everywhere. And, and just up, when you get up to the top of the hills, up into Bethlehem, the city itself, up from Shepherd's Fields, and you look north, you can see the gleaming city of Jerusalem. This place that, that holds so much history in the, in, the, in the lives of the Jewish people. This place where eventually this little baby will come to give up his life for all of mankind. But Joseph, much of what we know about Joseph we don't hear from any, any kind of verbal uh, exchange that he has. We have it from the encounter with the, with the, uh, with the angels. We have, it, we have maybe some information based on the towns that he's from and the area that he grew up in and some of the things that we know he did. For example, how old was Joseph? Ever had any idea, ever thought about how old he was? There are two major traditions about this. One says that Joseph was an old man, that he kind of took Mary as his wife and kind of doted on her more like a grandfather than a husband. In fact, Catholic and Orthodox uh, doctrine kind of teaches this. Protestant theology later on began to think of him more as a young man, proper marrying age, like other young men and women of his time. There's a major reason why the two different traditions look at, at, at the age of Joseph a little bit differently. In the Orthodox and Catholic tradition, the virginity of Mary was really, really important. In fact, we read at the end of this, the passage I just read, uh, verse 23 or 24, it says, Joseph never had any relations with her until after the baby was born. But Orthodox and Catholic theology says that she remained a virgin the rest of her life even though we hear word of Jesus' brothers and sisters. They would account for that by saying that Joseph was an old man and probably had children in a prior marriage. Protestant theology doesn't say that. In fact, they, they maintain that Joseph was probably a younger man, 
and that Jesus did, in fact, have brothers and sisters by his own mother, Mary, and his earthly father, Joseph. If you want to find out, we see this represented in art all the time. How many of you have ever gone back and looked at your nativity set and you kind of checked out the characters? Oftentimes, you can tell, this isn't always the case, but sometimes you can tell the artist who whoever created your, your nativity set, you can tell what tradition they come from. Go back and look at the nativity sets that you've set up and see if Joseph is an old man or a young man. And it may mean that the artist was either Catholic or Orthodox in orientation or Protestant in orientation. It's kind of a fun little, fun little exercise to play with. Well, what do we know of Joseph then? There's a term that Jesus uses at the end of his life, Abba. It's kind of a colloquial term for daddy. You know, that person that, it's kind of like daddy and mommy, right? Daddy. The one that protects and takes care. Who, who offers support and encouragement. We never hear any interactions of Jesus and Joseph. And yet, we find him even up to the age of 12 years old being mentioned in conjunction with Jesus as supporting and caring for this young man that by the angel's own declaration wasn't his by blood. But he was given the opportunity to be the adoptive or the surrogate father, the earthly father, to the Savior himself. He got to be Jesus' daddy, to teach him and to guide him when he was a little boy. Maybe some of the things that he, that he did would have, been, would have been some of the, the, the jobs that Joseph had. We call Joseph, in, 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 in the New Testament, in the Greek, he was called a tecton. Tecton. Tecton means a laborer. And there were tectons and there were architectons. Architectons were major, were, were um, uh, master laborers, right? Like a master carpenter, a master stonemason. Architectons were often stonemasons because most of the buildings were built out of stone. A tecton was just a, a normal everyday laborer. It, it appears that Joseph was not a, an architecton, a master tecton, or a master builder, was simply a laborer. Knew how to work with his hand and was humble and cared for his wife and his son with everything he had. And these are things that, that would have been imparted to Jesus from a, from a young age. These stories that would have been shared and the example that, that he would have watched day in and day out. And didn't it make sense when we watch how Jesus relates to the common everyday person whenever he comes into his public ministry? He doesn't see elitism. He doesn't see status in terms of the position that somebody holds. Instead, he sees status and position because you were created in the image of his, of his heavenly Father. That the woman at the well held, held as much importance as the chief priest of Israel. That the person sitting along the, the pools who was seeking healing was just as important as somebody like Nicodemus. That all of us had importance in the eyes of God. It had to have been a characteristic that, that Jesus watched exemplified in his earthly father, Joseph. And I think that the distinguishing characteristic for him 
for Joseph was one of humility. What a dad. He didn't speak a word in the New Testament. The last we hear of him was when Jesus is 12 years old. And Joseph, there in the, in, the, in the hills of Jerusalem, the shepherd's fields, would have been able to see a contrast of what he lived his own life to be. Down by, by Bethlehem, where, 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 where Joseph's hometown was, you could see down the valley something called the Herodium. At the time, whenever Herod was, was killing babies, was afraid of this king of kings to be born, Joseph was tasked with taking care of this little infant child. And down the hill, down the valley, he could see a, a literal man-made mountain created by Herod the Great. This, this, this uh, huge um, uh, uh, artifice that was, was created to show the greatness of who Herod the Great was. It had a pool, and it had, had this gigantic pool that had an island in the middle because he was so, um, so anxious and, and worried about people finding out what he was going to say that, that he could go sit in the middle of this pool and slaves would come day by day and fill this pool by, bucket full by bucket full to make sure that there was water all around it. And Herod and others would sit in the middle that nobody could hear them speaking with one another because he was so uh, paranoid about other people coming to take his power. And here is Joseph looking at this gigantic artifice, the Herodium, this man-made mountain, who was a simple day laborer tasked with raising a child who would someday come to save humanity. Joseph is one of the most under-understood, misunderstood, underrepresented, and least talked about folks in the Bible. And yet this man, like many of us around a Thanksgiving table or on Christmas morning when we're talking with our children, had to have a profound impact on the character development and the things that Jesus encountered as a child. that in the lack of what we know about Joseph via Scripture, I think what we see represented in his earthly son is an amazing gift of humility. My father's on his way out here right now uh, to come visit us, and he'll be here this afternoon. And my dad often speaks about the most important role that he thinks he plays beyond being a follower of Christ. And that's to be a father. And he'll often turn and say, my children are my legacy. And how they turn out, what they do with their lives, is a result of what I exemplified for them, good and bad. To this day, he still tells me, son, the things that I've done well, follow those and do them better. And the things I don't do well, improve upon them. You are my legacy. If that's the case for Joseph and Jesus, I mean, I know Jesus is the son of God, but Joseph had a profound impact on him. The most important gift 
it appears that Joseph handed to Jesus was one of humility. And I think we see it in one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. I think it's the the moment where we see the humanity of Jesus on full display. The night before he's to be crucified, gathered in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to his Father in heaven. And I'm paraphrasing this, but the prayer goes something like this. Daddy, if there's any other way to do this, to accomplish this, let's do that. But if not, if not, Dad, I'm your man. Jesus humbled himself before his heavenly Father. And I can't help but think that that came in part by the example of his earthly father. Man, what a dad. Amen and amen.